Is your kettle done? Oh, sorry. Just a sec. Get a corker. It's quicker than a kettle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but I'm an old-age pensioner, John. You know, I can't afford everything I want. Who amongst us is not an old-age pensioner? Yes, I know, but all I have is my pension. Oh, sorry, what's the subject, Colin? I'm not going to tell you. You have to listen to the introduction and then come in. I always listen to your introductions, at least in part. Hello, this is Colin Schindler, along with my good friends John Holmes and Patrick Barclay, welcoming you back to another edition of Football Ruin My Life. According to the great Scandinavian poets Benny and Bjorn, Money, money, money means it must be funny to say nothing of sunny in a rich man's world. And according to the brilliant creators of Cabaret, Kander and Ebb, the clinking, clanking sound of a mark, a buck, a yen or a pound makes the world go round. We know that at the top of the pyramid, the world of football is awash with money. It's positively drowning in it. And we know that the further down you go, clubs are constantly in danger of going out of business because of a lack of it. Now, there was a time, was there not, when a discussion about football would scarcely include a reference to money, other than a comment on our club's latest purchase and whether or not he might be worth the astronomical sum of £100,000. We talked about games and goals, about players and managers, and what did money have to do with any of that? Now, we accept transfer fees of €200 million Euros as entirely reasonable, and club owners are no longer millionaires. They are at least billionaires, because if you're the owners of Chelsea, you will have spent a billion pounds before you realise you haven't got a left back. Money, of course, goes along with power. And we all remember what Lord Acton, that great 19th century historian, politician and writer said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. And still more when you have the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority. Well, as far as I know, Lord Acton never watched Match of the Day in his life, but I suspect he would not be surprised by the state of football today, given its enslavement to money. John, I suspect you have a healthier regard for the stuff than I do, or at least as regards its place in the not very beautiful game. Are you going to tell me not to be such a Boy Scout about it all? No. I'm going to say, of course, as I would that my concern was initially, and the reason I got into the game was about money, because I felt that players were being exploited in lots and lots of ways. I think they were exploited principally, first of all, with money, and secondly, they were treated with contempt, which was a sort of ongoing bit from the fact that they were patronised. We can look after you, we'll look after you, And, of course, they weren't looked after in any way. When they finished, it was, look at him. He's turned into an alcoholic. He hasn't got a job. We tried to look after him. We paid him his money. But, you know, he had a bad injury and that was it. Goodbye. I entirely accept that. But we aren't, of course, talking about the owners of newsagents and pub landlords. Paddy, your feelings mm. about money and the nature of it and, it and its relationship to the modern game, I suppose, as opposed to what it yeah. was. I mean, everybody agrees with John, and John's done an absolutely fantastic job in, in making sure players are not exploited, but the pendulum has swung. Yes, I think so. I mean, I visited the homes of one or two players who were prominent in the 60s, even the 70s, 
And they're like my house, you know, they're nothing yeah, exactly. nothing spectacular. And I, I won't mention the name, but there was one who was a really outstanding footballer. And I somehow felt that he should live at a higher standard than me. You know what I mean? I just felt a little bit sad. And as far as I know, he had no lifestyle issues or fallen victim of a con man lawyer or something. That's why, you know, I'm with you, you know, in supporting what John, what motivated him. And he had a very successful part in the liberation of footballers. But the trouble is, if you liberate footballers, you don't always end up with Gary Lineker, mm. as John has. You know, you end up with conspicuous consumption of the worst kind. And I feel that too many footballers are of the type who will demolish a house so they can build a hideous new one on its site, you know, who can't choose a sofa. They get a consultant in <laughs> to choose a sofa for them. That, I don't think, is good for anybody, and it's certainly not good for the fans who pay for this, because that Absolutely. money doesn't come from the clubs, yes. and it doesn't come from the owners. It comes from only one place. It's you and me who pay at the turnstile, or more pertinently for our sky. And one of the books I wrote 20 years ago was called George Best and 21 Others, and it was about the Manchester City, Manchester United, players who played in the FA Youth Cup semi-final in 1964, mm. because an extraordinary number of them, something like 17 or 18 of those 22 players, went mm. on to play for the first team, which was remarkable. And I traced everyone that I could, so I, I got to about 15 or 16 of them. And they all, to confirm Paddy's point of view, they all seem to live in the same house, and not the same house together, but the same kind of a house, usually, you know, modern, three-bedroom, mm. on an estate somewhere, very modest, perfectly nice, clean, comfortable, with an ordinary car in the drive, but ordinary. And they'd gone back into the society, from, not necessarily from which they came, but they didn't stand out because they didn't have the kind of lifestyle that isn't good for any... Yeah, this isn't the morality police coming down again. It isn't good for our society to see such wide disparity mm. between success and not success. Mm. I think it's bad for the whole of our society. And football's a driver. That. What you're talking about is that one of the problems with football always was, which became more prevalent, was that footballers' education process was stunted. Mm. You know, you used to get this thing, they're all thick, mm. their brains are in their boots, rugby players, they're terribly bright and all that sort of thing. And it's actually nonsense. The problem was that the education process and their background did not enable them to rise above. If you asked any boy aged 13 or 14, especially a working-class boy, mm. would you rather stay on, get your A-levels, go to university, or play for Man United? We would, I would, I would. have said, oh, buggy university. Yeah. I'm not going with that Colin Schindler, yeah. listening to him all bloody day. I want to go and be a footballer. But, of course, for most of them, that comes to an end at 18 and so on when they're told they're either not good enough or they break their leg or whatever. So there was that, and still is to a degree, that football seduces them like it seduces us as spectators and commentators and fans and then spits them out. And actually, clubs will say they have to go through the motions of education processes and so on and so on now. And it's true, some of them learn from that. Some of them always learn from it, actually. You know, Francis Lee learned that he could sell toilet rolls, didn't he? You know, there was another fellow called 
Malcolm Finlayson, who's the goalkeeper from Wolves, Wolves became yeah. a multimillionaire as a steel stockholder. A small percentage did move on. Now, everybody at every level, they want to be footballers. And the ones that work out quickly enough that they can't be footballers become football agents. Mm. But why do they want to become footballers? Because of the game. Are you sure about that? I'm sure about that. It's the best game in the world. That is why it does rule the world. Week in, week out, it produces moments of great drama. There isn't anything much more exciting than to see a, a really good game, close game, which coincides with our side scoring two goals in the last minute and winning. That's yeah. the bit yeah. that yeah. really gets you. But you also have to take the disappointments and the downs and the ups, and that is part of becoming a proper person. But yeah. the game is still itself terrific. It's simplicity, it's drama, which makes it such a perfect vehicle for television. If you look at what has happened to television, most of that is driven by sport. And in particular, it's been driven by football. Sky was losing a million quid a week until Murdoch and Sam Chisholm watched the 1990 World Cup semi-final and decided, crikey, this has drawn an audience of God knows how many. There was no traffic in London, no traffic on the M1. Yeah. We must get hold of the rights to football in this new Premier League. And the rest is history, quoting a podcast elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me introduce a slightly different note. Last autumn, I think it was, Channel 4, I think it was, showed a series that you probably saw. It was about Crystal Palace Academy. And what it revealed to me, with I mean, these little kids, age 11, their obsession was to get a contract for 12 to 14. I don't blame the kids at all. And yes, of course, there is a, a root, a love of the game. But what I saw on those programmes were kids who had no real enjoyment mm. out of the game. Why do you want to play football for the next contract to buy my mum who's doing three jobs, you know, the Marcus Rashford thing. And I want to do it for her to buy her a big house and have a big car to give her. Well, what's wrong with that? Is that not quite healthy? I just think they would be better off reading Treasure Island for their own books. And living in a scruffy... No, uh, not at all. Why can they not find a job that doesn't involve sucking all the joy out of life? Put it this way, that not many of them are going to get a living out of football. No, and that's another thing that was clearly coming of, of these kids for whom I felt enormous sympathy mm. and regard for mm. exactly what John was saying about their desire was admirable, but they're yeah. going to be incredibly disappointed. To make a broader point, actually, it's one of the things that saddens me as a septuagenarian is the amount of aspiration that's being injected into kids who've got no chance. Because, you know, I used to see it in journalism colleges, you know. They all thought they were going to be Henry Winter, you know, but they're not. I mean, even Henry Winter had to struggle <laughs> to be Henry Winter. How is that being stoked up, Paddy? Who is doing the stoking up? I suppose by universities, you know, who have a financial interest in stoking it up. You know, all the kids who go to stage school know that they're not going to end up as, uh, what's he called? Um, name a famous actor. Laurence Olivier. No, no, at the moment. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch, or whatever oh, right. it's called. Benedict Cumberbatch. I know, I knew that all along. But they know they're not going to be that. They know it's a hard profession, and they know they're probably going to fall short. I think an awful lot of people are not being told that at the moment. Well, I think they're told that constantly. And don't stop people dreaming. Listen, who would have told 
Stuart Broad, for instance, mm. that he would play to the age of 37 mm. and off his last ball in test cricket batting, he would hit a six mm -hmm. and of his last ball bowling, yeah. he would take the wicket that won the match. So we have to have dreams. Yeah. Football is all about dreams. Education is all about dreams. Life is all about dreams. Otherwise, we all end up with nothing at the end of the day. You know, there has always been this from older people, as we now are, yeah. that it's going to be dreadful for the kids. And founder C.A. Clare, it was mm. deemed, wasn't it? Well, yeah. we yeah. have founder C.A. Clare every week. You yeah. Know? Yeah. We've got the worst government that we could imagine. We've got AI coming around the corner. Newspapers that are now rubbish. I get idiotic emails from newspaper reporters, mostly on Saturday, even mostly from the Mail on Sunday, who've spent all week trying to discover that Gary Lineker wore a suit with mohair in it. Yeah, yeah. And they all start, I hope you're well. So <laughs> I wrote back, thank you for asking. As it happens, I'm not. But on the whole, I fancy you don't give a toss. And the answer is no comment. Now, look, vast numbers of the country are currently on strike. You don't have to look very far to find people disenchanted and saying, we've lost out. Junior doctors are looking for 35% uplift because they've lost out over the years. And they do work incredibly hard. And teachers who can't afford to live in the area where they're teaching schools. And it's just terrible the way society has evolved into a situation where people cannot afford to put food on the table and to heat their homes and to look after their kids and all the basics. Now, we can see the problems of society. We can see the low wage earning Correct. potential of too many jobs. And yet we have football at the highest level, not at the Rochdale and Charlton Athletics mm. area, mm. but at the highest level, earning sums that are not commensurate. Correct. And the there is no justification for it because yeah. there is no justification actually for what Paddy was earning as a Sunday Telegraph football writer, let yeah. us say, yeah. against a nurse because he was doing a job that he absolutely loved and actually getting paid what the nurse would have said. Crikey, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And that you were paid, Colin, for working at a university or whatever. That is capitalism and yeah. that is the system. Yeah. I think about football. Who would I really want to earn the money? The people who actually play it and do the business out there on the pitch and entertainers or the wretched people who own the football clubs. When Lionel Messi was at his best with Barcelona, they could have given him £10 million a minute because he lit up the whole world, including me, you know, but billions of other people. And that's fine because he's lighting up the world. Similarly with certain film stars, yeah, they're overpaid for what they do, but considering their work brings a little bit of joy into the lives of hundreds of millions of people, then, no, they're not overpaid. But... There was a guy called Ruben Loftus-Cheek who played at Fulham, where I have a season ticket. And honestly, I wouldn't have given him tuppence. Not because he wasn't a good player, but because he wasn't working for his money. And there's another one who's probably less talented than him called Harrison Reed, who now occupies the position he does. And I'd give him the shirt off my back. And so would every other Fulham fan, because he works. He works for a living, therefore he deserves a wage. That sort of thing gets accounted for. Managers are not fools. Contracts come to an end. I tell you what, supporters are quick to pick that up. Mm. They know when someone's working their ghoulies off yeah, and when yeah, they're not. Yeah. And but when someone is trying. Maybe you might agree or disagree with my thing 
give Messi whatever he wants. Give him anything, absolutely anything. But do I think an ordinary player, do I think he should get even £2,000 a week? No, frankly, I don't. And yet you can't have a guy earning £2,000 a week next to Messi who's earning a million a year because it's a team game. So a lot of people are going to be sponging off the game, earning far too much just because they happen to be in the same team as a Lionel Messi. It's a completely reasonable point of view. And what you found at football clubs now, when I first started to watch Leicester, there was probably an admin staff of about 10 or 15 people. Now they employ overall around about 1,000 people Mm -hmm. at the club getting a living out of it. Now Mm -hmm. that's actually not all bad because it's created employment and it's part of the community. So do the players have too much money? The answer is, of course, but I do not quite understand what the term too much money is. It's very imprecise and it's a fair point to, to make. But I think we know what we yeah, mean when we yeah. say that. Yes, yeah. but we're talking about Premier League and maybe Championship yes. players. Let me ask John, how much do players playing for Rochdale uh, averagely? <laughs> do you know what? I don't think I've got much of a clue, but I would suspect some of them are on 150000 £200,000 a year. Really? really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm some of them would still be on 30000 mm. And one or two might be round about the minimum wage, mm. you know, to be honest. Well, the median wage in this country is around 30,000, isn't it? Yeah, some of them would be below that. The astonishing thing, to be honest, is how many people are earning a living from the game now. Even in non-league, people are full-time pros, which is, if you think about it, amazing. Yes. There are people playing in the National League, the fifth level, who are now full-time pros. Yeah. And the old story about you know, in the FA Cup, and this team is comprised of a window cleaner, a policeman, an out-and-out criminal. No, no, that's that's the chairman. Oh, yes, sorry. Sorry, he didn't play. But that has changed a bit. Lots and lots of people are actually earning a living about it, and a lot of them still have this dream that they can go from that level. Take the example... Jamie Vardy, of who was playing with an ASBO thing, stuck round his leg, which he said was good because people didn't dare tackle him. And he <laughs> couldn't play that long in the second half because he had to get home because of a curfew. Yeah. And he rose from non-league part-time, making prosthetic legs in a factory in Sheffield to going out on the World Cup and taking part in the World Cup, winning the league and winning the cup. Yeah. So there are people can dream and yeah, it can go. Equally, great. there are people for whom it all goes wrong. Football still gets people to go and watch. Mm. I can remember being approached by some cricketers about 15 years ago. And one of them in particular who played for Sussex and he was in and out of the side and he came to see me and he said, I don't think I'm paid enough. And I said to him, I think you paid too much. And he said, what do you mean? I'm only on this. I said, how many people watch Sussex in a county championship game? And he said, not very many. Are you on the TV? Not unless we get to the one-day final or something. I said, well, work that out. Are you really a professional sportsman? Or are you somebody who's actually getting overpaid for what you're doing? If people aren't watching you and they're not watching on TV, you're not actually a professional sportsman. That is why soccer's been so powerful and so on and other sports have found it out and are they overpaid 
you can't call that. It's down to public taste. Mm. Yeah, all right. I kind of accept what you're saying. The problem is, is the money at the top from the owners going to the right places? The facilities are better now. It is a better experience watching the game. They have made the game grow. They have also enhanced their own wealth disproportionately. They buy and sell football clubs for thousands of millions of pounds. Do they put anything back? Some of them do. Some of them don't. Is the governance of the game helping the situation? I don't think it is. I think it's out of control. I do think that if we talk purely about the Premier League, yes, the players are obviously overpaid and that they'd all work for a fraction of their wages and be happy on a fraction of their wages. I remember once going to a party which was arranged for the final match of Southampton's season. must have been about 10 years ago. I think Harry Redknapp was the manager. The party was arranged for one of the players by his wife. She didn't take a great deal of interest in football and she didn't realise that the last game of the season could be pretty horrible. And Southampton were duly relegated and her husband came into his surprise party with a look that would have killed. (laughs) Anyway, I happened to be sitting with the rest of the players and I was sitting next to a guy called Brett Ormerod who was in the side. Jamie Redknapp was in the side as well. And I was sitting next to Brett Ormerod and he told me what would relegation mean? Well, it would mean a cut of a half in their wage. You know, say he was on 500,000 a year at that time, he was going down to 250. And he said, come on, I think I can live on 250. Because I presumably had put on a long face, you know, phony long face. And he, he said, come on, don't feel sorry for us. So all footballers at the top level, yes, are overpaid. But what I'd like to see done with that money, I would like the money to be top sliced and used for good causes. For example, child obesity. With the power of footballers to influence people, plus the money that football could pour into the campaign, I think we could save lives a year, type 2 diabetes, through football concentrating on that. And then when that's cured, they can go on to something else that does something for society. I think that would make everybody in football richer, regardless of what the wallet says. So you're advocating, how would you do that? By taxation? No. When the TV money comes in, siphon away a half, a third, whatever, and then give the rest to the clubs to distribute to the players, which would slow down wage inflation. It would cause a diminution of imports and it could affect the performance of British clubs in Europe. But personally, I'd like to see British clubs, sorry, English clubs, slightly less successful in Europe because it's becoming boring. And I like foreign teams to be frightening, you know, and I think a lot of fans do. I think there would be no real bad cost to top slicing the TV deal and using that money for various things. One would be the social campaigns, such as anti-obesity and type 2 diabetes for children. Another would be improvement in facilities. The facilities have improved. Yes, but no, nowhere near to the amount that the players' wages have improved. Nowhere near. I mean, Manchester United's ground has not been touched. That's an individual choice, and that's, of course, what would happen if you gave it back to the clubs. For change to be made, mm. it has to be compulsory and from the level above. Otherwise, it won't work. We all know that. 
we can all say to people, don't drink and drive, but it's only when there are penalties and it becomes the law that it actually yeah, works. That's why I would like to see the money taken away from the clubs before it goes to the players. And how would you decide whether it went on child obesity campaigns or children suffering from spina bifida or national health service wages or better roads? No, I wouldn't be in favour of taking over government responsibilities, even with all due respect to Marcus Rashford, free school meals. I don't think that that is an appropriate use of the money. I think the money should be used for football-specific projects. And child obesity is clearly a football-specific problem. It's to do with fitness and health, which, let's face it, is the only point of playing football. If football exists only for us couch potatoes to sit there getting fatter, eating Walker's Crisp, with all due respect, John, <laughs> and drinking the beers that are allied to the clubs, if that's what it's for, then it's not really worth playing. It should have a point beyond just entertaining us. Because let's face it, we pay for that entertainment. And I think that there's a duty to give something back. And the reason I say child obesity, it is with football. If every kid in, in the world trained and played and used up their calories, then child obesity would reduce. And that would have a good effect on society because the amount of money that in 20 years' time, the National Health Service, should it survive, will be paying on treating children who currently are developing type 2 diabetes will be phenomenal. And even Colin won't be willing to pay the kind of tax levels necessary for it. I won't be here, Paddy, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> God, we're a smug lot, aren't we, knowing that we're not going to be here. Oh, yeah, yeah. I welcome the angel of death into my house as soon as it Yes, yes, goes. death, where, where is thy sting? The problem with money, it is a barometer of success. We don't have another as far as we know. Mm. When you gauge your success within your profession, generally speaking, the only barometer you can take at the end of the day, or the one that has become the most common and most accepted, I would regret this in some ways. The only barometer is money but that is the society we live in. And I don't think you can break away from that. It is part of the phenomenal success of football and the way it's been marketed. A lot of it by people who didn't actually play. You know, some of the architects of the Premier League, they didn't play. Mm. Some of them were overweight as well, mm. but they created that and media barons, some of whom we quite like, some of whom we really don't like, but they've played some part in building it and growing it and so on. The Premier League is, whether we like it or not, an incredible success story mm. in a country that hasn't got too many success stories knocking about at the moment. It's wrong to completely denigrate it and say, oh, it's too successful. He's bought in too much money. No, I don't think it's too successful, but I don't like the Premier League. I mean, you know my feelings about the Premier League. For me, it's a destructive element. Mm. It has destroyed my love of the game. That's what the Premier League has done. Yes. At this point, I think I'd like to say that I know people who work for the Premier League and I know how much good stuff they do. In fact, there is a pavilion at a community football club for boys and girls, about a mile from where I live. And they built a beautiful new pavilion, which in itself generates money through events. 
that was built, which came through the Football Foundation. But who funds the Football Foundation? But the Premier League. So there are lots of things that the Premier League does do. But I just think that in money terms, they could do much more and they could institutionalize the social role of football in a way that it never was before, but it actually just happened. Well, I'd love that to happen, Paddy, but I, 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 it worries me slightly because it's a bit like looking at private members' bills. I mean, John makes the point about why is one better than the other? What's something that they could do, which would be uncontroversial and is much needed, is to stop that ridiculous tapering effect of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. I agree entirely with the windfall tax or the removing money at source mm -hmm. when the money comes in from television. But why can't it go to equalising the gap between the leagues? Nobody would pretend that League Two, or fourth division, as I keep calling it, is going to be in any way remotely comparable to what is the first division or the mm -hmm. Premier League. Mm -hmm. But there is a possibility of stopping... Clubs going out of business like Berry. Now, Berry went out of business because they had some idiots who were in control of the club. It was people who did it, not the institution. Yes. But somehow that has got to be dealt with. And I do think that City or United or their surrounding Premier League clubs hmm. could have saved Berry from the change they find in their turnoffs. So it comes down to better governance, doesn't yeah, it? Yes. yes. Better yes. application of the fit and proper person to run leagues and... While I don't think the current owners of Manchester City are Paragons, the previous one was an international criminal. And there are other owners, I won't name them because some of them are still alive, who will not set foot in the country because they're wanted by the police <laughs> and so on. And they're owning the clubs through structures, offshore structures. We do need to get a better structure of governance. And I do also believe that American sport is actually a bit better at that. Mm. You know, they did work out that gambling and sport did not go together quite as well. And they were more alert early on because of the shoeless Joe Jackson case. Also, the power in their leagues is in the league and the administrators of the league are not in the clubs. Mm. That is where there is a problem. The American system of drafting is not perfect, but it does actually help spread yes. the bits about. The draft system, I'm sure, would be illegal under any European law. Of course. But having said that, we have a lot to learn from the Americans, as John rightly says. In a way, what they do in the home of capitalism, you know, American sport is probably the last bastion of socialism in the Western world. And whereas we mistake sport for capitalism, I think we make a fundamental mistake there. Sport should be more socialist and less capitalist. So take your point, the baseball, you don't know at the beginning of the season which one of those seven clubs in each little division is going to win. Mm. They could be top, they could be bottom. You just don't know. That has to be a better system than what we've got now, where Manchester City win the first game of the season away at Burnley 3-0, and there's a sense in which, well, that's it, then, mate. It's now the middle of August, and we pretty much know what's going to happen in the middle of May. It's over. Well, that can't be good for the game. And that is what makes American sport at its best admirable, it seems to me. You know, Colin, you've just told the audience that we are talking now in mid-August, and this programme might go out at any time. And I just hope that your prediction looks sick when it goes out, and that Newcastle are top of the league. Oh, yeah, well, of course, we want the Saudi Arabia. Yes. I think we'd much prefer Luton, actually, who got thumped on coming up. Yeah. Sheffield United, who lost at home 
the days when Derby came up mm. from yeah. the second division and won the league yeah. the next Forest, year. Forest. 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 Best example of that. all, yeah. yeah. They're long gone. Mm. There are certain things that happen in sport. Mm. And when they came up with the idea of the Premier League, that deal was badly done. First of all, they had no idea they were going to make as much money as they did. These were the people who a few years ago would say, no, 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 we can't have too much on television, otherwise people won't come and watch. Mm. So it's difficult. I don't blame them. They didn't foresee the future. Mm. It was logical, wasn't it? Why would you actually go and turn out in the rain and watch a football match when you could sit at home and watch it from the comfort of your armchair? In those days, the stands weren't covered and it was a miserable experience. So a lot of things have altered, but I do believe that the fundamental decision to go with the Premier League, when that was a perfectly understandable desire by clubs who thought they were doing more for the game, they were run more efficiently, they were bringing more money into the game, they were entertaining more people, why shouldn't they got a better share? Mm. I don't think that was an unreasonable view, but there should have been a realisation at that point that, hold on a second, this could get out of hand here. Yeah, well, it's clear it didn't happen. But yet, define for me, what is the difference? For somebody who's just arrived from outer space and has seen recordings of Match of the Day from 1974, and that was all he knew, mm. and he'd arrived here now, define for me the difference between the First Division as was and the Premier League as is. Well, the fundamental difference is not a lot. The thing that they would say is, good grief, what are all these foreigners doing? Mm. Where have they all come from? Where have all the players of colour come from? Well, the players of colour were born here. I mean, that's fine. Some of them were, but there weren't very many of them playing in 1974. Not 74, but 92. And things have absolutely moved on in lots and lots of ways as society's moved on. Mm. And yes, the game would be, in many respects, unrecognisable from where it were. Mm. You used to be in the town at lunchtime talking with your mates and say to them, do you fancy coming to the game this afternoon? Yeah. Who are they playing? Well, maybe not. It's going to rain. Or, yeah, it's a good day. Or I've got bugger all else to do. Yeah. And they would just turn up, go to the church stars and go in. And there wasn't a thing saying away supporters only and all those sort of things. But the game has moved on. And in, in lots and lots of ways, it's improved. What I think we got wrong mm. is there are still a lot of bad elements from it because the people in charge have moved from being small-time baddies yes. to big-time baddies. That's a very good point. I agree with that entirely. Well, an interesting thought that Collins just alluded to was, in other words, what's the difference between the Premier League? Was it a revolution or a rebranding? I tend, like John, to think of the latter. An awful lot of the improvements that are ascribed to and associated with Surely they would have happened anyway. Sky would have, after the 1990 World Cup, taken over the First Division. The First Division's quite a snappy title, actually. It sounds a wee bit yeah. like... Do you know, it sounds awfully like Premier League to me. <laughs> you know, maybe Second Division doesn't sound like the Championship, but it's still pretty similar. And you wonder whether the trickle-down effect would have been better had they not rebranded the Premier League as a separate entity. I don't know. I don't know. 
We can't unravel it now. Yeah, of course. And it's a bit, you know, I spent a lot of time shouting at the sky. Of course, I yes, understand yeah. that entirely. All the sky blues. <laughs> <laughs> and the horse has bolted and every other metaphor you can think yeah, of. Yeah. However, having said that, I think I'm quite encouraged by the conversation even though we differ in some aspects mm. about the beneficial aspects of the current game, we all agree that the commissioner, the governance of the sport, it is possible to get hold of that yes. and make it an effective instrument with teeth that can do something to address some of the things that yes. we all think are wrong yes. with the game. And I will be drawn back into the game if that happens. Because at the moment, I just feel with every season that passes being increasingly alienated from the game. Yeah. Whereas if I saw things happening of which we all approve, mm. I would feel much happier and much more inclined to rejoin the living. And if this were a dictatorship run by the three of us, mm. it'd be... <laughs> Because what would happen is that John would make an attempt to kill Paddy and leave just me exposed. And I would, then be, I would then be sent into Siberia and John would run the whole thing. That's how I see it's going That's to not be. such a bad idea, is it? Really? <laughs> He's had plenty of opportunities to kill me in the past. <laughs> I was making the point, Paddy, that there are things that can be done and there are things that would improve the game. And there are things, although we disagree with it quite a bit, there are things that we fundamentally agree about, yes. which I think we would need be good for the game. men of vision yes. at the top, and women. Yes. who are courageous yes. and prepared to stand up and be counted. Mm. And we need them to gain the ear of the people who can actually change it. And that involves help from politicians, yes. help from the television, and help from the public in the way that the revolt against the Super League yeah. was really good. Do you know that gave us hope, didn't it? It yeah, gave us it. hope because it was, in effect, it struck me as being a bit like a people's revolution. There weren't consumers being given things by the generosity of the Premier League. They were supporters standing up for themselves and crying with one voice, we don't want this. Mm, mm, Correct. Mm. And I just found that... Mom. There's a big difference between capitalism and so on. We all go to a soup, various supermarkets. We have our favourites and so on and so on. Mm. If one supermarket goes off a bit, mm. you don't get the customers marching round yeah. saying, sack the manager. Yeah, yeah. They just move. Yeah. But we know that's difficult mm. with mm. football clubs. What was really quite heartening that as a people's movement was that it was not only the people who would lose out as the owners thought they would, it was everybody who said, no, this is wrong. But what those people need is to be empowered at the very top. Of course. Had the 14 other clubs not involved in that then said to those six clubs, you're out, you're expelled, go off and run your own league until you sign a pledge that you will never do that again. And they could have changed other rules along with it yes. at that point. And the supporters of all clubs would have supported them yeah. on change that could have come in. Well, can I introduce one thing? In the 1980s, the rule changed, I suppose it was the Football League, but I don't know, you'll tell me, whereby clubs got to keep all the home gate. Yes, that's When right. it was previously... Was it two-thirds, a third, or something like mm. that? But So if Southampton went to Manchester United, they got a third of the gate of a 70,000 crowd. If they went back to the Dell, all they got was 20-odd games of 15,000 people. Mm -hmm. And that automatically opened up a breach. 
in the structure of the league and the finances that accrued to it. Now, that could be changed with one stroke of the pen. Right, it's not correct. difficult, correct. it's a major move in the right direction. How do you both feel about that? Well, I feel, yes, that would be wonderful. At the same time, I'd unreform the two other reforms made around the same time. One was to allow remuneration of directors, which was illegal before, although widely practiced if you believe the stories of special turnstiles. Also, dual representation, which was allowed. In other words, agents being allowed to take active arranging role in transfers rather than just being the shepherd of their client through the negotiation of the wage after the transfer. There's a huge difference, as John knows far better than me. And I'd like to see all of those reforms, all of them regressive in the sense that they hark back to a previous age. But Colin, I dearly love you, so don't hold your breath. No. (laughs) Please. But it does depress me that these are very simple measures which would have a beneficial effect on the game, but the people running it see the game as it needs to be run in their interests and not in the interests of the fans. There are moments, as I say, when change can be made, and I've referred to two. The first one was the formation of the Premier League, yeah. where they, in fact, caved in to the demands of the big clubs. Mm-hmm. And the second was, this was a more populist movement. Populist movement's not always great, but there was this moment when the big clubs realised ooh, heck, our fans don't actually like this idea. There have been several moments. The majority of those clubs could actually take a step towards sorting it onto a more equal basis. But the problem is that several of those 14 have aspirations to become one of the six. Now we're getting... Big players, American film stars being the current one, mm-hmm. or sports stars, Tom Brady's going to take over Birmingham. Ryan Reynolds is under the impression that he can take Wrexham to the Premier League and so on and so on. So perhaps all these clubs will become vehicles for stars from other places and countries and all that sort of thing, and it will become more competitive. But at which point, what will that be? Will that still appeal to people? This is a primary school playground argument. My dad's bigger than your dad. It's as reductive as that at the end of the day, which is desperately disappointing. But I, I am pleased that within the conversation that we've had about money in the game, I do see shreds of light. Paddy tells me not to hold my breath, <laughs> and I take his point. But I think hope springs eternal in the human breast, and I and think at that's this point, where I we should are. make an appeal for any businessmen who may be listening that this podcast requires a sponsor <laughs> so that we cannot keep shelling out ourselves <laughs> in its production, and our producer, Paul Kobrak, gets some reward, and I don't have to pay for Ian McShane and George Layton's lunch every other week. Well, I don't think you were me to pay for it. We were all terribly impressed at your generosity and very grateful for it. But I don't think that's going this to This is be... where good men need to stand up, and I felt that was one such occasion, Colin. Well, you are but a good man, John, and we, we I enjoyed it. that. And now, uh, having got through all the paraphernalia of sycophancy, I think we ought to say thank you as ever to John Holmes and thank you as ever to Patrick Parkway. Thank you to you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us we're all wrong, you can do so by writing to footballruinmylife at gmail.com. And we will see you next time on Football Ruin My Life, coming to a podcast pair of ears near you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Forgot to say who I was, but that's beside the point.
Everybody knows who you are. Yep. One of the 12 <laughs> disciples. Sorry, that's wrong parallel. But uh, no. They were all Jewish at the time. Yeah, yeah they were. John was well outnumbered, and Paul were well outnumbered, because there's me, maybe technically not a Jew, but I identify as a Jew. Uh, you do identify, absolutely. To be fair, I thought the Gentiles played their part, as ever. <laughs> oh, they always do. They have something to contribute. We don't demean them. Diversity is the middle name of this podcast. Oh, of course it is. Oh, I'm waiting for a decent review in the Jewish Chronicle. Which hasn't been coming yet. <laughs> yeah, diversity with three old white men. But anyway, yeah. four old white men. Sorry. 